Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. For those of you who know the Joseph story, you know the Joseph story, you'll know exactly where we are. For those of you who don't know the Joseph story, go rent the movie with Ben Kingsley. It's really awesome. Um, and it's very long. The Joseph story for Torah is very long. Uh, it's four partiot. It takes up four partiot. Um, and it's like, you know, a quarter or to a third of the book of Genesis. So it's actually a very long story for Torah. It's a novella. So it is uh, its own little novel that's dropped into the end of Genesis. It, um, it is treated by those folks who I find most interesting talking about this. It is treated as classical mythology. Um, you have your classic hero tale here, uh, your classic, um, you, you know, tale of, of adversity and of fate and of, you know, all of those kinds of things about deception and, and suspense. And, um, and so I want you to think a little bit, those of us who know the Joseph story, I want you to think a little bit about like, why is it here? So sometimes we just kind of take it for granted and that's great. And we just look at it and we love it and we dig in and all of that. This year, I'm a little, I'm, I'm focusing a little bit more this year on why is this part of our sacred text? Why is this story of a kid who's a dreamer who gets knocked down, stands up, knocked down, stands up. And then like, what, what's going on that this becomes part of our sacred text? Okay. But so let's keep that, that question in the background we're picking up at the point where Joseph has become vizier of Egypt. He has successfully interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. He attributes his ability to do so both in prison and as we talked about last week and in uh, Pharaoh's palace before Pharaoh, he attributes that power to God, not to himself. So he's called very talented. You're very successful at this, says Pharaoh. I understand he helped some of my people out. And, and Yosef, no, that would be God. I just kind of do what, what God reveals to me. He doesn't use that word, but, you know, he, he attributes the power of the correct interpretation of those dreams to God. Um, and before Pharaoh, uh, Nechama Leibovitz points out, um, he says several times, when God has done what God wants to do here. So, like, he, he really has changed in terms of where he locates authority and power and talent and um and all those things so so that's where we are the brothers have come to egypt because there is a famine in canaan in canaan and they come as we see often uh folks from rain dependent crops look to egypt when they have a rain shortage induced famine because the nile is how uh, crops are irrigated in Egypt. So often the northern part of Egypt had food when other parts of uh, Mesopotamia and Israel did not. So this is very common, actually, that folks would come as itinerant workers um, or they would come to purchase grain. And if and what really struck me this time was this kind of like, okay, well, they're going to go buy food. Why is that such a big deal? Think about when we didn't have PPO and everybody was freaking out the front door about PPO and toilet paper. 
Um, it was a big deal if you knew where to get PPO or toilet paper, right? At one point during this crisis. So now imagine that's going on and it's even worse than PPO or toilet paper in that you might not survive, right? And, and you don't know where to procure food in your country. That is a massive scare for you know any family and any clan. And now J- Jacob has a lot of people. Remember, he's a sheikh. He has a lot of people living under him and dependent on him. He needs a lot of grain. He needs a lot of provisions. He needs a crap ton of PPO to keep his people safe. Um, and so you, it's going to be a haul. It's going to be a schlep to go somewhere where there's enough that even though they have money, that there's enough supply for them to bring home. So, so they go to Egypt. They come before Joseph, who is the one to decide who gets what. And he has welcomed foreigners. They must know this or they wouldn't have bothered to go. So that says something about Joseph, that he has welcomed foreigners into Egypt and is giving them provisions, grain provisions. Now, you can decide that's a great idea. We love Joseph for that. He's our hero. Or we know what happens at the end of the story is that everyone is enslaved because there's not enough grain. And um, Joseph essentially enslaves the entire population. Um they're impoverished. And so was it a great idea to welcome foreigners and give them grain when Egyptians didn't have enough by the end? Okay. Again, relationship to power, relationship to control of resources. Um, it's really complicated in the Joseph story. We, we forget that because we want him to be our hero and the rabbis love him. Um, but it's a very, really, if you look closely, it's a complicated relationship to power. So, um, so that's where we are. Yosef, knows that these are his brothers. The brothers do not know it's Yosef. Obviously, they do not expect to be meeting a Hebrew who's the second in command of Egypt. He is dressed Egyptian. He is wearing Egyptian clothing. He has taken an Egyptian name. His head is shaved. Like everything, he looks from the outside Egyptian. Um, And so they have no reason to suspect he's anything other than Egyptian. There's a long conversation in the commentators about how could they not have known. Um, We could spend time doing that, but let's do this first. All right. So let's just get to the actual text. So when, um, so this is the moment that Joseph recognizes Benjamin. Now, remember, it's been decades. It's been a really long time. Um, Benjamin surely has changed but he recognizes him. He knows these are the brothers. It doesn't take, you know, a rocket scientist to figure out which one is Benjamin. So, so Yosef sees Benjamin, his only full brother among the brothers. And he said to his house steward, take the men into the house, slaughter and prepare an animal for the men will dine with me at noon. The big meal of the day. The man did as Joseph said, and he brought the men into Joseph's house. But the men were frightened, meaning the brothers, at being brought into Joseph's house. It must be, they thought, because of the money replaced in our bags, the first time that we have been brought inside as a pretext to attack us and seize us as slaves with our pack animals. Remember, they came down for food. He, Joseph has his people put the money that the brothers paid back in the sacks of grain. So they think... Um, They think that he thinks they stole from him. And remember the condition for them to come back and get more grain if they should run out, which they did, um, was that they bring Benjamin with them. 
and and uh, and uh, Joseph keeps Simeon as a hostage. So they've come back. Now they're being invited into the house. So they don't know why they're being invited into the house to dine with this important Egyptian official. Each really high-ranking Egyptian official would have had a private prison in their home, in their palace, in their estate. They would have had a private prison in the cellar. So it's possible that the brothers think they're being brought in, not to his house, but they're being brought into Joseph's own private prison because they stole from him. It's a personal affront. He would have every right to lock them up in his house and enjoy it. So they went to Joe up to Joseph's house steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the house. If you please, my Lord, they said, we came down once before to procure food. But when we arrived at the night encampment and opened our bags, there was each one's money in the mouth of his bag, our money in full. So we have brought it back with us. And we have brought down with us other money to procure food. We do not know who put the money in our bags. He replied, all is well with you. Do not be afraid. Your God, the God of your uh, ancestor must have put treasure in your bags for you. I got your payment. And he brought Simeon to them. All right. So Joseph clearly has set all of this up, right? He's told the guys, put the money back in their sack. They're freaking out. They confess that they had the money, but they brought it with them and more money. They weren't trying to rip anybody off. They're not thieves. And um, the steward says, not a problem. Look, your God must have worked some magic for you because I received your payment in full. So the brothers have to be a little confused uh, at this point. The man brought the men into Joseph's house. He gave them water to bathe their feet, and he provided feed for their chamorim. They laid out their gifts to await Joseph's arrival at noon, for they had heard that they were to dine there. So they've brought gifts for Joseph because they've got to be fairly nervous about what the heck is going on. When Joseph came home, they presented him the gifts they had brought with them into the house, bowing low before him to the ground. He greeted them and he said, how is your aged father of whom you spoke? Is he still in good health? So you can imagine what a kind of a moment this is for Joseph. He's not yet asked whether his father is still living. Um, so he, on some level, has to ask this with a great amount of trepidation um, to get the answer. They replied, it is well with your servant, our father. He is still in good health. And they bowed and made obeisance. And actually, I think, um, yeah, okay. Yeah. They don't really address it here, but the Hebrew, it's a little funnier that like he asks after the well-being, the shalom of their father, and then remembers at the end of the sentence to say, uh, is he still alive? Right? Like he's making an assumption, but he doesn't know if their father is still alive. Okay. Um, Looking about, he saw his brother, Benjamin, his mother's son, and asked, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he went on, may God be gracious to you, my boy. With that, Joseph hurried out for he was overcome with feeling toward his brother and was on the verge of tears. He went into a room and wept there. So interesting. Um, the Hebrew expression, his, his mercies, his compassion is heated up. Um, for his, when he sees his brother, um, and he can't hold it in. 
he can't keep it together. And so he has to leave the room and he weeps in the other room. Then he washed his face, reappeared, now in control of himself, gave the order, served the meal. They served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. For the Egyptians could not dine with the Hebrews since that would be abhorrent to the Egyptians. So we think kashrut is the first time we see uh, dietary uh, taboos put in place to to protect Israelites from mixing with other people. Uh -uh. Already happening in Egypt, people. It's already there. In Egypt, they don't, the cow was sacred to them. The sheep, they wouldn't touch a sheep or a cow to eat it. That was disgusting and revolting to them. The Greeks ate cows, so famously Egyptians would not kiss a Greek on the mouth, nor would they use the ma'achelet, the um, knife that they used to stab their meat and eat it. They wouldn't touch one of those from that a Greek was using because it could have been used to eat cow or sheep. So next time you don't believe me about the Passover story, about it's a big deal to tie up a sheep in the backyard that you're intending to kill. Um, you know, it's a big deal. All right. So, um, so we, so this could have been a tip off to the brothers, right? Because it could have been, why is Joseph eating separate from the Egyptians? Maybe he's in a different room and they don't know that, but he's, he's, he's sitting by himself, Joseph, because he can't eat with the Egyptians because they won't eat with him. They know he's a Hebrew. They're not allowed to sit with him. Doesn't matter how high ranking he is. He remains a Jew, to use our modern parlance. He remains a Semite. He remains a Jew in exile. So even if he wants to completely assimilate, he can't. He's still treated as a Hebrew by the Egyptians around him, including Egyptians, all of whom, other than Pharaoh, are of lower rank than he is. They still won't eat with him. And... And the brothers are served separately because they are, the Egyptians won't eat with them. Presumably Joseph is either of too high rank or he doesn't want to give away the fact that he's actually uh, a Semite. And it would give it away if he sat with them. Now here's the other tip off that has to be freaking the brothers out the front door. As they were seated by his direction from the oldest in the order of his seniority to the youngest in the order of his youth. The men looked at each other in astonishment, right? Because how could somebody possibly know their birth order? To seat them at the dining room table in birth order is freaking them out. Portions were served them from his table, meaning they got some of the good stuff. But Benjamin's portion was several times that of anyone else. And they drank their fill with him. Okay. So that's got to freak them out even further. So these, these brothers are get, he's doing a major, major mind. You know what with them major mind games. Yes, Bert, you know what I meant. Okay. So, uh, then he instructed his house stewards as follows, fill the men's bags with food as much as they can carry, put money in each one in the mouth of the bag. Again, put my silver goblet, my special kiddish cup, in the mouth of the bag of the youngest one, together with his money for the rations. And they did that when the first light of morning, the men, so the, the brothers leave first light of dawn, they've got their stuff. They're leaving. They can't wait to get the heck out of there. 
They had just left the city and had not gone far when Joseph said to his steward, up after them. And when you overtake them, say to them, why did you repay good with evil? It is the very one from which my master uh, drinks, which he uses for divin. Oh, sorry. No, 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 no. Yeah, they left the city. Joseph said to a steward, go get them. When you overtake them, tell them, why did you replay uh, repay good with evil? It is the one from which my master drinks and which he uses for divination. It was a wicked thing for you to do. He overtook them and spoke those words. And they said, what are you talking about? What does this remind us of? We just had this, didn't we? Something gets taken and somebody says, yeah, Lee's trying so hard. But Rebecca she's and Laban. <laughs> All right. Excellent. So, um, Lee, I know you know it. Um, and Pam knew it. Um, so, um, right. So Rivka takes the trafim. No, Rachel takes the trafim from Laban's house. Uh, and then he comes after them saying, where the heck are my trafim? And they all are like, what are you talking about, trafim? So that's exactly what's happening here, except this time Joseph has set it up. So they're like, what are you talking about? We wouldn't do such a thing. Just like Yaakov, they don't know what's happening. And they're a bit outraged that they would be accused of such a thing. Um, Here we brought back to you from the land of Canaan, the money that we found, meaning we found money. We had our money. We could have just stayed home. And like, we're honest. We brought back the money we found in our sacks. Why would we steal from your master? Again, echoing exactly what happens with Yaakov. This is what you say when you're innocent. Yaakov and the brothers say, if it's found in one of our possessions, that person shall die. And the rest of us will become your slaves. He replied, although you are what you're proposing is right, only the one with whom it's found shall be my slave. The rest of you shall go free because he knows he's framed Benjamin. So each one hastened to lower his bag. Each one opened his bag. He searched beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest and the goblet turned up and bah, 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 Benjamin's bag. At this, they rent their clothes. Each reloaded his pack animal and they returned to the city. So they tear their clothing as a sign of mourning because it means Benjamin's lost. He's gone. And they have to go back to the city because presumably they said, execute him and the rest of us will be your slaves. When Judah and his brothers re-entered the house of Joseph, it was still there, right? Because remember, Joseph has his stewards say all of this and act all this out. They throw themselves on the ground before Joseph. Joseph said to them, what is this deed you have done? Do you not know that a man like me practices divination? Meaning you took my divination cup. Judah replied, what can we say, my Lord? How can we plead? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered the crime of your servants. Here we are then, slaves of my Lord, the rest of us as much as he in in whose possession the goblet was found. Judah is the one who speaks up. Judah, let's remember what happened in the middle of all this other stuff. Remember Tamar? Remember that whole business? He's supposed to give Tamar his sons. He dies in being engaged to Tamar, uh, married to Tamar, get other son dead. Now he won't give her the third son. She wants a child. She's owed one. Cause there's another male son. She seduces Judah. She successfully becomes pregnant by Judah. He thinks she's a prostitute when he finds out she's pregnant because she's betrothed his third son, even though he won't give her his third son, she's just kind of in this state of betrothed limbo. 
he t- calls for her to be burned. He calls for her to be dragged out and burned publicly. Um, and then is humiliated when she produces his driver's license. Uh, this is the man I'm pregnant by. Um, Judah has changed. So I always hold that now with seriousness when we look at this moment for Judah. Judah has been through a lot. Judah understands what it is to lose a son. He's lost two and almost killed his own son, sort of grandson. It's kind of Alabama-ish, but, you know, his son, it's also his grandson. I don't know. So um, anyway, so... (sighs) Far be it from me to act thus. Only he in whose possession the goblet was found shall be my slave. The rest of you go back in peace to your father. All right. So he has framed Benjamin. He is, of course, as we know, setting up circumstances to test whether or not the brothers will behave the way they did with him. The other beloved son of Rachel, the only other son of Rachel and Jacob. His full brother, possibly Benjamin is favored. We know he is because because Jacob kept him home. Joseph had to ask specifically for him to be brought down. So we know that Jacob treasures Benjamin. We know he's a favorite. So now Joseph knows that too, because he was withheld. And they said, it'll kill our father if something happens to Benjamin. So now he's taken the favorite, seeing, will they do and behave like they did with him? when he was the favorite. What are they going to do? He said, you may go, but I keep this one. What are they going to do? So this is, this is how Joseph has set in motion um, a way to decide what it is he wants to do vis-a-vis his brothers, whether or not he wants to come out, what he wants to do to them, how he wants to deal with them. And um, what I'm very aware of in, in reading it this year, for some reason, I don't know why. Um, in thinking about why is this story here, what's interesting to me is that Joseph could have taken revenge right away. He's the vizier of Egypt. He could easily have poisoned their grain, right? He could have thrown him in a pit and said, nanner, nanner, you know, turn about as fair play, guys. He he, he could have done anything. What stops him from doing that? And in several places, the word jumped off the page when I was reading commentaries this year on the story. Like several places, the, the word longing like leapt off the page to me out, out, out of the commentaries. That, that Joseph is the consummate outsider. He was an outsider in his family. Then he's literally an outsider because now he's a slave and now he's taken into a foreign land where he's for sure an outsider, but he rises to the inside of the system of power in that country. And yet the Egyptian officials won't eat with him because he's a Hebrew. He's still an outsider. And he marries the daughter of a priest sound familiar um, of Egypt and takes a, a, an Egyptian name. He speaks fluent Egyptian. And, and so he, and yet he doesn't kill his brothers right away or send them off or come out to them. It, it, there's something else informing what's going on for Joseph. And you know me, if you've learned with me, I often think Joseph's a brat 
and feel like, yeah, he grew some, but look what he's doing to his brothers. Like, really? Is all of this necessary? And and he's just manipulating and, you know, he's like a cat with a toy. Um, I don't know. This year, I feel a little differently about Joseph. I feel like he's really Mamash the Stranger, the Outsider, Lonely. And not just lonely, people act out of loneliness in all kinds of messed up ways. And I'm not saying this is a healthy family system, don't get me wrong. But I I do have some Rahmanis for Joseph's longing to not to, to have something that he's so yearning for that he's willing to set up all of these tests to figure out might it be possible with these guys. Without doing this test, he can't know whether it's worth risking being vulnerable and coming out to them and whether it's worth longing you know, anymore. He could just get that answered and boom. But, he, but something else is informing how he treats them. And usually, you know, I guess I'm too quick to leap to manipulation and, you know, whatever. I, I really feel like this year it's very clear to me my reading of Joseph this year um, is that he wants something so desperately that he's not been able to have. And it's that longing that we usually see as a weakness that we usually see as, Oh, just see a therapist and get over it. Move on. Right. Just see somebody deal with it. You know what I mean? This is your life. This is who you are. You need to be whole without that. Um, And you need to heal from that and move on. And that's our American kind of way of looking at a, a lot of these things. And, and this myth is it goes way deeper, I think, into what's really, what's true for so much of us, for so much of our lives. We think we want this and this and this and this, and then we achieve that and go, wait, how come I'm still not full, totally fulfilled? Like, Because there's something, there's a deeper longing and yearning for something that sometimes we can't even quite put our finger on. And, and I feel like that's where Yosef is. And the, because of that, because he leans into that rather than try to beat it down, the brother's lives are spared. And eventually his father comes to live with him and they are in some bizarre way reunited. Um, and I'm just kind of going to put that out there because I'm just super aware of it um, this year. Barry? Yeah, so I, I get why... Uh, one would think that Joseph is this, you know, catty, uh, manipulative guy, some even cruel, maybe. Uh, even even when he was young, to tell them of his dreams that they are all going to serve him, that's, that's a bit cruel. <laughs> uh, however, uh, I've recently been thinking about people in our society where I work uh, in my school children who can appear cruel, but are really clueless about social interaction. So, and, and these people, because they always, they're not good enough ever. They always seem like they won't say good morning to you because they're in their own thoughts. And you think, what a snob. Why, why wouldn't he say good morning to me? Right. And I'm so clueless. And also sometimes those kids who seem so cruel are actually really lonely and tortured and they're coming yeah. out of their own pain. And, and yeah, exactly. And what gave it away for me, at least were, were, were when he went to seek out his brothers in the field, he got lost. 
And he needed some stranger to tell them to tell him where they are. It, it is it is so you know telling of of who this person really is. So I I feel your Rahmanas very much. Yeah, uh, that possibly he was he was such a brat to them and bragging about his dreams, like you said, out of this inferiority complex. You know that that they don't include him, they don't take him seriously, they don't. They're, they resent him because of how Jacob dotes on him and just because he's Rachel's son, not because of anything he does and they get overlooked. And I totally feel that this year looking. looking uh, and, this and, year. Another, my final point would be that I think uh, these types of people, one of their coping mechanisms is to observe humanity, to have, observe how people treat each other and act and they copy what they see, and they don't do it instinctively, but they copy what others do. And, and I think Joseph is doing these experiments to, to really learn how to behave in society. Yep. I, uh, Amy, I, I think um, I'm fascinated by all the testing that Joseph is doing, uh, that for him... Any kind of reconciliation isn't just, oh, okay, forget about it. But he has a lot of hurt that he has to resolve within himself. And he won't get back into relationship with them until he knows that they have changed as well. And that's kind of how I'm identifying this as being less about manipulation and more about longing. You know, that he, he can't be in relationship to them if they're the same people they were. He has to test them because if they're the same people they were, he's going to be just as lonely or furious and murderous and livid or devastated, right? He, he doesn't want to be in relationship to the people they were, but he knows he's changed. So possibly, <clears throat> right, he's, he's really looking to see, is it possible that they've changed and goes to great lengths to see whether or not that's true. And I think longs for it to be true um, because he can't be in relationship to the people they were right. That, that would just be stupid, right? That would be self injurious, right? To, to, I mean, you'd be a little crazy to, you know, to get back in relationship with people who were ready to kill you. Um, All right. So, um, if you don't know the book, you just really need to, those of y'all who work in this world really need to know um, the book, Our Father's Wells um, by Peter Pitsula. Um, and he really talks about male, yeah, Lisa Rosenbaum's giving it a thumbs up. Um, it's really an incredible read of Genesis from a patriarchal perspective. And from, you know, we've talked a lot about the matriarchs and, and living in a patriarchal um, tradition and how that changed things for um, the women in our stories, but um, but Peter Pitzula really digs into the patriarchal stories as they pertain to male identity and to male relationship to self, to father, to God, to brothers, to tribe, um, and it's it's really quite something. And I've I've had it in my I've been reading it for years and years and years. And I'm still always finding something in there that I'm like, wow, like right. I'm sure I've read that 17 times over the years and it just didn't go in the same way that it did this year. So um, one thing that, that um, spoke to me this year that uh, he writes Peter Pitsula 
is on the one hand, we know, and the Egyptians do not, that Joseph's achievement has taken him farther than ever from his own identity. He is no longer even Yosef, but bears an exalted Egyptian name. The very trappings of his office trap him in isolation. He has lost his inferiority and he has lost the kind of self-awareness, the wisdom that it can bring. As a prisoner, Joseph was able to look past his own disappointments to notice the dejection of two inmates. Now he is insulated from disappointment by his supreme election. And it got me thinking about um, the ways that the very qualities that lead some people to places and positions of authority and power then put them in a position where they can no longer access those parts of themselves that, that were really going to be of service. Does that make sense? Right. It's, it's his ability to, to at the bottom of the food chain, read what's happening with these two prisoners and care and want to help and want to make it better and want to make it different. And he does for them. At, well, for one of them. <laughs> and then, um, then when he rises to power on the wave of that ability and capacity and tendency to, to have compassion and empathy. Um, now he's in a position where he's cut off from all of that. He, he can't read people's disappointments because he's not around people who are disappointed. Because now all he has is yes men around him. Now all he has is we're going to bow to the ground. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And he's cut off, right? And cut off from the very parts of him that brought him to leadership that brought him to power. And I thought, my God, don't we make this happen to people all the time? And, and, and I, I'm going to speak because I trust you all. Of course, this is a podcast going everywhere, but I'm going to speak just off the top of my head for just, I think about things like, where's Kamala Harris? Like, like she was like the fiercest, smartest, most talented, incisive, like, minds we saw running what actually needs to happen in this country when we watched her cross-examine people and it's like uh now she's in the white house and where is she (laughs) right like so and i'm not being critical i'm saying it's one it's one of the challenges of now rising to power is that you then become isolated in the halls of power in such a way that kind of cuts you off from the very things that made you effective, which is your care and concern and contact and being with the very people that you want to help. So again, I, I'm not trying to be critical. I don't even know what I'm talking about. She's probably doing lots of really amazing things. What I mean is we don't see her anymore. And I feel like that's a little bit about what Pitzel is talking about. And then what does that mean for our leadership? Right. Um, is that that they're 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 then cut off from the things that inspired them to take on leadership responsibilities was empathy, sympathy, compassion, you know, a real understanding of of people's pain and what they're going through, and that's what fueled them. That's what reward the reward for them was about getting to fix that. And now, so it just I guess what I'm saying is it, it's another level and another layer for me of Joseph's loneliness. Possibly is it. There's no cupbearer and baker to talk to. 
to help, to serve. He's alone in a palace with a bunch of officials and completely cut off from real people and regular people. And how lonely that must be. That's what Pizzola is pointing out, right? That it's taken him away from himself, his own identity, his own personality, his own way of working in the world. And that has to be super lonely, even as he has achieved the greatest success one could imagine. Right? Um, Amy? Yeah. Yeah. Um, In medicine, it's very interesting that individuals distinguish themselves either with their research or clinical care or both. Those people tend to get promoted to heads of departments or deans of medical school where they have to be administrators and they have to raise money. And nobody ever trained you to be an administrator or raise money. So you wind up being isolated. You have nobody to talk to because you're the boss. And the boss never has anybody. Yes. Thank you, Bob. This is exactly what I'm talking about. The very talents that get you to quote unquote, the top, then put you in this place where you, A, you don't get to use your talents that you know anymore. Now you're supposed to do a different kind of job. Um, and yeah. Right. And then it's like, well, wait, so this is success that I get really good at what I do. So now I can't do what I do you know, th- that was rewarding and fulfilling. Now I have to, I have to go to finance committee meetings. Um, okay. So Amy, um, Amy, yeah. You know, I, I, I think the seating chart that you described for, for that lunch really said it all. It made me very sad for him because he did, he has this high, high place and he's still very much alone and he's a voyeur into the family, the presence of the absence of being a part of this, family. And it was very sad to me. And I saw some people were suggesting that he might have been on the spectrum. Possible. (laughs) Possible. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, it doesn't matter. You know, it's a story. But um, but I like, um, you know, what Mark and, you know, is talking about, too, that that yes, that he's. Yeah, that as the favorite of the father, someone who could overcome his brothers, you know, that, you know, that an an inflamed preoccupation with a sense of being other is also the other side of thinking you're so important. You're so important that you're other, Um, you know, and that comes with deep, disturbing things. Right. Um, But yeah, Richard, to what you're saying, it's like, he's, he's a voyeur and he knows it. He has no family. He's married to Asnat and has two sons, Ephraim and Manasha, but he names them, right? I have forgotten all of my, you know, family of origin and all of that stuff and all of that Mishigas and all of that suffering. Really? That's what you name your kid. So that every time your kid comes in front of you, that's right. So have you really forgotten? If you name your kid, I have forgotten about my past and my family of origin. Really? Right. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And so he has family, but Clearly, there is so much unresolved, right, um, about that family of origin and feeling like, yeah, and how sad that he's like looking in. And, and Richard, more to your point, he's looking in to his brothers having changed to be people who care about each other and who care about Benjamin. It's even more, yes, like, yes, like, love that, that it's even more poignant that they care about Benjamin, and they didn't care about him. 
And he's watching the relationship between brothers who have grown and changed and Benjamin being protected by them. That has to be so complicated, right, for him. Dana? Um, I was just thinking about your initial question, why this story of Joseph for us in the in the Torah? And for me, you know, it's it's what it's the transformation of the family. It's not so much Joseph's story. I mean, that's why I'm reading it. You know, Joseph, I mean, I guess he had a tough life, but it ended up he had a lot of his needs met. And, um, you know, he made some choices to behave a certain way with his family if he was missing something. But I get a lot from seeing how the family reacted and their growth and their transition. So, um, you know, uh, and even when I think about Kamala Harris, you know, I think she's probably doing a lot. I'm, I'm satisfied with what she's doing in leadership. I don't, um, I don't need that person up there with the bully pulpit horn leading me all the time. I know that she's there. Like, I know that you're there doing your thing for our community. So um, that's why I like the Joseph story. So for you, it's really a story of B'nai Israel, literally, <laughs> right? The sons, you know, the descendants, the descendants of Israel. Like it's the story about B'nai Israel and what's happening for B'nai Israel, not necessarily one Ben, <laughs> you know, one son. Um, and David Russo, I watched Succession last night um, because I had been putting off. Judy doesn't love it at all. Um, and so she was tired and I'm like, okay, yay. I can watch and savor how horrible these people are how horrible these people are and it's like she's like i don't understand there's not one redeeming character she goes i thought maybe shiv was going to be for a while she goes but there's nobody why do you watch this i'm like because they have it all they've reached the top and look how miserable they are it makes me so happy <laughs> to not be at the top. That's why I watch it. It's like, you know, cause we think growing up in America, you know, we think we long for a private plane and, you know, billions. And then you watch the show and you're like, really, Amy, would you trade being, you know, in relationship to this psychopath for, you know, or sociopath like, and having to do whatever he says and take whatever he says, just so you can have your private plane. I mean, I'm just saying like it, there's a certain kind of weird, bizarre, crazy satisfaction it's the other, it's also the reason that I watched, not anymore. Joseph, Joseph is definitely not Logan Roy. No, exactly. Um, and it's the Except same reason. Amy, why is, how do you reconcile Benjamin, the way he treats Benjamin with your view about Joseph? He, he doesn't do anything to Benjamin. He's testing the brothers. He's not going to hurt Benjamin. He's testing by saying he sets him up for a capital crime. And then wants to see if the brothers say, yes, take him. We're going home. He sets him up, but he doesn't, he doesn't have any intention, I don't believe, of hurting Benjamin. Uh, he wa- he's testing the brothers and have they changed. Um, it's also the reason I watched the Real Housewives of Orange County. Just gonna say, don't okay, you think he wants to get back at Jacob by taking Benjamin? Though? I don't think he wants to take Benjamin. He wants the brothers to say, no, take us. Go ahead, Judith. I have two things. One, I think that this is the the Jewish version of the everyman story. It's a pattern story that we see in in most cultures of the 
the hero who gets sold down the river somehow makes his way back, has to find his way back into the mainstream and so forth and how he does it. So it's a hero story. I'm also fascinated with your um, change of views as you learn more, read more. And I think it's a lesson to all of us that the more we read and listen and understand, the more our views change, too, that you changed your view about Moses from time to time. And and I I love that, that you read more and you learn more and you see something different. Thank you, Judith. Um, and, and I'll just say it doesn't feel to me linear, like or pro, you know progressive. No, like I circle back through, you know, <laughs> based right. on what's happening for me, and, and that's what Peter Pitzula says. Peter Pitzula says we can only the text is only ever a mirror for us um, to what's happening, you know, in right. our, has happened in our life. And as I keep, like you said, studying and reading, and other things happen to me in my life. Yes, other aspects of the story come to the forefront. What I love about what Peter Pitzula says is the text can only ever be a mirror for us, but our mirror is someone else's window. Right. It, it also, I think it also um, is a testimony to how real these stories remain because they do affect us in different parts of our lives. They're not static stories, they're very vibrant, alive stories. Well, and part of that is because there's been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of commentary. Yes. Asking these of these stories questions that pertain to the commentator's world. Right. Right. Um, So I'm going to to that point. So this is from Trua. This is from um, the Justice website. And so... um, in Truad, Rabbi Daniel Chorney writes this piece about the descent into tyranny. We were talking about power and Joseph's relationship to power. Um, and now he's part of the Egyptian right structure. He and he's talking about like what what's what's the problem, you know, that with with what happens at the end. And he says, he's I would suggest that Joseph's great mistake was not in enslaving all of Egypt to Pharaoh, which he winds up doing as he does in next week's Parsha. Rather, it was buying into the established Egyptian power structure. Okay, American Jews, I want us to sit with this for a minute. In Egypt, Pharaoh was considered a god, responsible for maintaining the cosmic order between the heavens and the earth. Pharaoh's humanity is forgotten among his courtiers, servants, subjects, and even himself, claiming that the Nile is my own, I made it for myself. This is the foundational problem, and indeed, one of the reasons God needed to bring 10 plagues on Egypt. For all the times Joseph attributed his skills and authority to the God of his ancestors, he left room for Pharaoh to claim supernatural power. For all his charisma and wisdom, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. The technocratic tinkering with a fundamentally unjust system did not withstand the test of time. So what Rabbi Chorney is saying is right that Joseph's big mistake was he he participated in a system that allowed the perpetuation, not just of the idea, but of the reality that Pharaoh was a god. If you do that, that's the fundamental flaw that then results in Joseph's own family being enslaved, right? And 
it led me to wonder what is the fundamental flaw that we confront as a society that we in some ways suborn, that we in some way participate in perpetuating and not challenging enough, right? Things that come to mind for me are individualism, right? That the only thing that's important is the individual and freedom from. You can't tell me what to do, not freedom to, right? Freedom from, that that is an American flaw that says, you can't tell me I have to get a vaccine. You don't get to do that. This is a free country and I have freedom to choose. Of course, they'll choose what I do with my body, but that's a whole different conversation. Um, so, um, right. The other one that comes to mind for me is consumption, you know, materialism. A fundamental flaw is you'll be happier if you have more. You're more successful if you have more. You're more important if you have more. And you can for have, fill in the blank, buy, consume, use, enjoy, you know, whether it's massages or it doesn't have to be things, right? But it's this idea that the more that you have in terms of goods and services makes you successful somehow. And that's evidence of a successful life. I think so, I think is a fundamental flaw that our society lifts up as what's important is what's, you know, it has to do with money and the accumulation of the access to services, which is power. And that, and if that's what's important, that's what's going to be rewarded. And if that's the case, do we really expect our education system to change? <laughs> right? If we don't value teachers and the learning of students and what kind of humans we're growing, what we care about is money, we're never going to fund the schools. Um, anyway, it just, it, it was an interesting commentary for me about, right, what ways are we Jews who now have access to power in America and being assimilated like Joseph has been, in what ways are we kind of implicated, if you will, in the fundamental flaw of this project? That one was that Pharaoh was a god. This one is maybe that money is a god. Um, anyway, and I'll close with the other one that kind of interested me. He, this uh, Alex Israel from uh, Pardes goes through all of these iterations of Joseph, all happening at the same time, by the way. Joseph as Egyptian, Joseph as still being a Hebrew, right? Because they won't eat with him. The rabbis see him as Yosef HaTzadik, the righteous. Um, and that he's, he, he says no to Mrs. Potiphar, uh, that he attributes everything to God. Necham Leibovitz here, she's pointing out all the times he he says it's God who's doing this when he's in front of Pharaoh, the Jew in Galut, right? The Jew in exile, that he remains, you know, kind of a Hebrew, and yet he's he's got access to power and to being assimilated. Um, and then comes to this idea of Hanukkah, because this is always read at Hanukkah. And so um, what's the tie-in, you know, to between Joseph and Hanukkah, right? That Joseph is now living as an assimilated Egyptian. Um, and that's exactly what the Seleucid Empire was trying to do to the Hebrews in our story of Hanukkah, right? Was Hellenize them. And many, 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 many Israelites loved that. Just like many, many, many Jews love New York. 
They don't want to be back in Jerusalem. Thank you very flippin' much. So this is, this is exactly the same thing that they loved being Hellenized. But there was a group that said, if we do that, if we go over, right, then, then what? And the difference between us and them is that it was outlawed, right? Antiochus Epiphanes outlaws Jewish practice, Jewish ritual, Israelite at that point, of course. Um, you know, and so the question is, well, is Greece bad? You know, if they're being Hellenized and assimilating, of course not. There's elements that were taken into deeply into Judaism from that. Rambam, Maimonides is a Neoplatonian, a Neo-Aristotelian. Those are Greek concepts that Rambam totally bought, totally bought. The Mishnah says a Torah scroll can be written in Greek, right? All right. So, so it's not that it's bad. It's that, you know, what is it? Joseph is a Jew who lived steeped in foreign culture and remained true to his religion. Um, he, he keeps thanking God for this and acknowledging God for that. Not Ra, not Pharaoh, not Isis, but Yahweh. Um, Joseph is the person who knows how to take Greece, absorbing what it offers him, but still retaining his Jewish identity. He knows what to take and what not to take. He is critically selective. He knows how to adopt those aspects of a foreign culture that are beneficial to a person, to a society, and he can identify and reject those aspects that are antagonistic and corrosive to the Jewish way of life. In a way, Joseph always remained an enigma to his brothers. His brothers remained rugged sheep farming Canaanites. Joseph never fully became part of the family. He is treated with a certain distance and wariness by his brothers. He tragically remains an outsider. But for us who live in a world of other cultures, Joseph's message is crucial. His path is a difficult one to tread, but tread it we must if we are to create a harmony between our faith and the culture of the Western world. We have to know what to adopt and what to leave aside. And that way, we too may live up to the legacy of Joseph. So I will close with that message of Hanukkah, um, that yes, we are assimilated. And hopefully what we do is take the best of the culture around us. Um, and that includes an Israel Berry, take the best of the cultures, right, that we're exposed to and, and incorporate the best of those and do that Jewishly, like figure out and what do we need to reject of the, of the cultures that, that we are influenced by and participate fully in. And, um, and I think those are, I think that truly is the path, whether we live in Galut, you know, whether we live outside of the land of Israel, but Israel's no longer separate from the rest of the world and is deeply, as we know, impacted and influenced by the culture of the West. Um, and so, and so I just, I offer that for Hanukkah. May we, may we have the courage and the insight and the creativity and the strength and the um, intelligence and I mean deep intelligence that lives in the heart and the mind to to figure out what we need to take, where we need to lean fully into this wonderful, amazing culture that we are blessed to be a part of, and where do the Jewish parts of us need to be critical, uh, and and in what ways do we want to remain um, Jewish in a meaning in a way that's different from the uh, the culture that surrounds us. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.